This is Africa Digest. Hello and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. We are in Johannesburg in South Africa. You can find us on 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band. That's if you are in Southern Africa. You can also find us on uh, channelafrica.co.za can also find us on 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. My name is Spumelele Zondi. I'm with Onel Nzinti. Your top stories. Workers around the world are celebrating May Day. The United States has pledged strong support for Nigeria's fight against Boko Haram. IMF approves the three new loan arrangements for Malawi. Onel Nzinti has a news first. Thank you, Spoo. U.S. President Donald Trump has pledged stronger support for Nigeria's fight against Boko Haram jihadists. After a meeting with Nigerian President Muhammadu Buhari, the first leader from sub-Sahara Africa, invited by Trump to the White House, Trump said he was prepared to sell helicopters to the oil-rich country in addition to light fighter aircraft already agreed. Trump has, however, also demanded greater trade access to Africa's largest economy. The quartet trying to help bring order to chaotic Libya says it supports holding presidential and parliamentary elections this year and will provide observers and electoral assistance to ensure the voting is free and fair. In a joint statement following a Monday meeting in Cairo, the European Union, the African Union, the Arab League and the United Nations says Libyans must commit in advance to respect and abide by the results and avoid violence or intimidation. Libya slid into chaos after after the 2011 uprising that toppled and killed Muammar Gaddafi. The whole Ethiopia has lost electricity overnight after a technical problem at one of the country's hydroelectric dams. State media says although the problem has been fixed, some areas of the capital Addis Ababa are still without power. The BBC's Emmanuel Igunza has the details. The power blackout started Monday night after a circuit broke at the Mega Gibe 3 dam in southern Ethiopia. State media says engineers from the Ethiopian Electric Utility Company have rectified the problem. Power outages in the country are common despite Ethiopia investing massively in hydroelectric power dams. Egypt's weather agency says a sandstorm has hit parts of the country, closing several highways in the southern province. This is days after rare heavy rainfall pummeled the capital of, of Cairo and other parts of the North African country. The Meteorological Authority says the unstable weather is expected to last until Thursday. Rare heavy rainfall has pummeled Cairo and other parts of the country last week, leaving some roads impassable. And lastly, Workers' Day in South Africa was officially recognized and observed as a holiday after the first democratic elections in 1994. The holiday serves as both a celebration of workers' rights and a reminder of the World Trade Union's play. South African President and ruling ANC Party leader Sarah Ramaphosa says raising the national minimum wage could scare off investors and escalate unemployment in the country. Others would have preferred the national minimum wage at 12,000 or 15,000 rand. Half the people in South Africa would have lost their jobs. We want to incrementally 
increase this minimum wage so that our people are kept in employment. We want to attract investors into our economy so that we must build new jobs. Channel African News, I'm Onilinsinsi. Thank you very much for staying with Africa Digest and thank you, Onele, for the news updates. Let's start in South Africa where President Cyril Ramaphosa has commended South African workers for their hard work and significant contribution to the economy of the country. Ramaphosa was delivering his Workers' Day rally speech at the main Kosatu event at Isaac Wolfson Stadium in Port Elizabeth. He says they will defeat poverty and unemployment through the Tripartite Alliance. Comrades, Workers' Day is a significant day in the life of our country. This is an important day. We fought for this day. In the past, this was not a holiday where workers would spend time together and with their families. This was a normal working day. Your trade unions, you as members of your trade unions, you fought very hard in the 80s to make sure, Guti, the workers of South Africa must also celebrate Workers' Day like all other workers in many other countries. You waged a titanic struggle, and today you have succeeded in that struggle, and today this day is yours. It is a day on which workers remember also those who have fallen in the course of the struggle. We remember those workers who also lost their lives. It is a day for all South Africans because the well-being of our nation, in the end, it depends on the well-being of workers. The rights that we all enjoy are nothing if workers are not able to also realize their own rights and enjoy their rights. This is also a day, comrades, when the entire nation needs to be grateful to you as workers because it is you who have built this country to be what it is. It is you who have made South Africa what it is today. As we walk around and see the progress that we have achieved, this progress was achieved through your hands through your labor, through your suffering, through your blood and sweat. So this is the day when all of us in South Africa take off our hats to you as workers and say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for all the work that you do for this nation. Because in the end, 
You are the people who make South Africa work. You are the people who make South Africa move. You are the people who make South Africa shake and move forward. So and we dip our heads in honor of all of you as workers and we say to you, we respect you, we love you, we support you, we want to continue walking this journey with you and all we can say is thank you and also thank you to you and your families because it is your families that also make this possible. We are grateful as we celebrate Workers' Day that indeed we do have an alliance in our country because this is the alliance that continues to take South Africa forward. Because it is through united action that the alliance has been able to lead our people in defeating apartheid and it is only through united action of this alliance that we will be able also comrades to defeat <clears throat> poverty unemployment and inequality the problems that we are still grappling with even today that's South African President Cyril Ramaphosa addressing a May Day rally at the Isaac Wolfson Stadium in Port Elizabeth. Zimbabweans joined the rest of the world today in commemorating International Workers' Day amid concerns that government is falling short in respecting workers' rights. This year's celebration took place following strikes by doctors, nurses and recently teachers over non-payment of allowances and failure to negotiate better wages. Vice President Constantino Chiwenga's behaviour that of making a decree to have striking nurses dismissed from work came under heavy attack while calls were made for workers to liberate themselves during elections this year. More from our correspondent Simon Machema who is in Harare. For the first time in the history of the International Workers' Day in Zimbabwe, a familiar face and voice that of Morgan Changrai was surely missed. The late opposition leader and pioneer of the Zimbabwe Congress of Trade Unions, ZCTU, Changrai is one of the main reasons workers in Zimbabwe always looked forward to International Workers' Day each year. His shoes are too big for the remaining members of the labor movement in the country that is faced with various labor challenges. Last month, Zimbabwean doctors down tools over non-payment of allowances and failure by government to review salaries. This was followed by another strike by nurses. However, nurses faced a difficult fate when Vice President Constantino Chiwenga ordered all striking nurses to be dismissed and replaced by non-experienced nurses. As Zimbabwe Congress of Trade Unions commemorated the International Workers' Day in the capital, a call was made by Jafet Moyo, ZCTU Secretary General on Zimbabweans to liberate themselves. I, I think this is a key indication that uh, the workers, uh, yes, they are joining the rest of the world in commemorating their day. However, they are commemorating it uh, when their situation is different from maybe other countries. Here in Zimbabwe, they are commemorating it when they have uh, 
various challenges. I think these challenges have been going on for the past decade or so. So they are still within the challenges they have been going through over the years. Particularly this year, they are celebrating when their political situation is very uncertain as they head towards the election. They are celebrating uh, or commemorating the day when uh, they have um, cash challenges, job insecurity, uh, four-tire pricing system in the country. Former Labour Minister during the Government of National Unity, Paulina Mpariwa, had this to say over the recent strike. People are thinking political rather than economically and through a humanitarian spirit in terms of unity, in terms of dialogue. I will take you back to that. During my tenure as the Minister of Labour, we had actually come up with a with a collective responsibility in terms of the tripartite negotiating forum, that is the social dialogue that the, the, the current president has actually been pronouncing. But you cannot talk social dialogue when you are not talking with the workers, when you are not respecting even the negotiations, where the responsible minister actually talks to the workers that the agreements then they can actually go to cabinet and this is this is not been happening and to me that is already a violation and in terms of a collective ILO convention 198 199 that is a violation already in terms of a collective bargaining the right to strike and the right to to affiliation and Zimbabwe is not actually towing line when they go to ILO they will have a torrid time and I would want to appeal to government to actually respect the workers' rights, respect even the workers in the civil service. Meanwhile, there was drama at the commemorations in the capital as members of the MDCT led by Dr. Tokozani Kupe were barred from entering the main arena. Party spokesperson Linda Masari Rasei. When I came here, I, I, I went through the accreditation process which everyone was going through and they told me that my name was not there on the list. But I received a call last night from uh, Peter Mutasa inviting me to, to, to the May Day celebrations. So um, I've got every right to be here like um, the, the MDCT personnel led by Nelson Chamisa. So what I see here is factional politics at play where they don't want the other faction to come here and to, to also be part of the May Day celebrations, which I see as a fallacy because when we, we, when we go back into history in 2015, Nelson Chamisa actually presided over the sacking of more than one million workers in Zimbabwe. And he's the one who's got a priority to speak to workers today here. I see that as an oxymoron. On one hand, MDCT leader Nelson Chamisa shifted the blame regarding the wages saga on the Emerson Mnangagwa-led government. The ED government is a worker-insensitive government. If you look at the raft of uh, legislation that has been instituted, it's clear that uh, the, their legislation is anti-workers. But not only that, they believe in command economics. So they want to command salaries. They want to command wages. They want to command the working environment. They do not care about the safety, health, or considerations to do with uh, a decent wage for the workers. After everything had been said and done, there were indications Zimbabwe is at crossroads as Progressive Teachers Union PTUZ Secretary General Raymond Majungwe described government as not caring. There's no promise that we will not have a, a, a work stoppage because they have refused to meet us in the meetings that they want to take us through are not the ones that we want because they are not going to address the challenges that we are facing. So as far as we are concerned, we are very disappointed that ED and his government don't respect workers, 
they are not respecting the law because what has basically happened now is judging by what happened to the nurses. They cannot militarize everything. In Arari, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. The East African nation of Kenya has also joined the rest of the world to mark International Labor Day. Sarah Kimani attended the historic day in central Nairobi, the venue of the occasion, and filed the following reports punctuated with traditional and Labor Day songs. From doctors, nurses, teachers and lecturers, 2017 witnessed prolonged industrial strikes, mainly over pay disputes between the government and workers. While on the one hand, the government insists that the ballooning public wage bill is unsustainable. The public wage bill stands at 627 billion shillings per year, amounting to 50% of the total revenues collected by government. This staggering amount is used to pay the salaries and allowances of 700,000 public officers, including those of us who are here today. In simple terms, 50% of all the money collected as revenue from the Kenyan taxpayer goes into the pockets of less than 2% of the country's total population. Workers say they are justified to demand better pay and better working conditions. To counter regular strikes and interruption of services, Kenya's Ministry of Labor has introduced amendments to the current labor laws. If Parliament passes the new laws, doctors, nurses and other medical workers' unions will be required to provide a set number of their members to continue working during strikes so that service delivery is not disrupted. The union movement has termed the amendment retrogressive. Benson Okwaro is a Deputy Secretary General of the Central Organization of Trade Unions, the umbrella trade union body in Kenya. Uh, but we also appreciate the essential services. And um, why do people have to go on a strike in the first place? What we need to address is why people go on strike in the first place. If we do the normal issues, if we talk as usual, if we consult, there will be no strike, leave alone the emergency services. A view shared by majority of Kenyans we spoke to. Uh, but if you go to like doctors, they are learned person, but they are paid peanuts. So there's no way you can tell, say they are not supposed to go on strike. Uh, when he's being oppressed, he must go and uh, strike. The union also feels that the government has failed to end disharmony in the public sector due to its heavy-handedness. Okwaro again. But the employers, particularly in the public service, have refused to try to seek dialogue. Why is it that we don't have it in the private sector? Because we talk. Under the new laws, any union planning industrial action will be required to give a 21-day strike notice up from the current seven. Sarah Kimani, SBC News, Kenya. It is you, the people, who are our true heroes. This is one of the most important moments in the life of our country. I stand before you filled with deep pride and joy, pride in the ordinary, humble people of this country. You have shown such a calm, patient determination to reclaim this country as your own from the rooftops 
free at last. This year, 2018, marks 100 years since the birth of South Africa's first democratically elected president, Nelson Kholihlahla Mandela. Join Channel Africa, South Africa's international public service radio station, as we celebrate a centenary of the life and times of Madiba. Join us in a year-long broadcast campaign in honor of Nelson Mandela's legacy through a variety of informative radio programs. Channel Africa, celebrating 100 years of Nelson Mandela from an African perspective. Channel Africa has good news for you. We have extended our reach. If you have an iPad or iPhone, download the Channel Africa iOS app at itunes.apple.com. If you have a cell phone, then get our Android app at Google Store. Get the latest news from Africa. Get the Channel Africa app. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. You still listen to Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. My name is Spumele Lezondi. Remember that you can always find us on Twitter and follow us there and engage us um, with any of the content that we have right here on Channel Africa. It is Channel Africa One on Twitter. United States President Donald Trump has pledged stronger support for Nigeria's fight against Boko Haram jihadists while demanding greater trade access to Africa's largest economy. After a meeting with Nigerian President Muhammadu Buhari, the first leader from sub-Saharan Africa invited by Trump to the White House, Trump said he was prepared to sell helicopters to the oil-rich country in addition to light fighter aircraft already agreed. Buhari is on a three-day visit to the United States aimed at drumming up more counter-terrorism support and business investment. Channel Africa's Kumbero Mungerere spoke to Lagun Akin Loye, Nigerian political analyst, about the significance of Buhari's visit. This visit, I think, was extremely important um, for Nigeria, first of all, because um, President Mohamedou Buhari um, was the first sub-Saharan president to visit the White House, which I think is an indication of how America view Nigeria and how important they are as trading partners, economic partners, and security partners. But um, the PDP are right in the in the fact that when you go to a country like America, um, you are meant to project the interest of your country and what is important to you. And it seemed that um, he was being more um, important to Donald Trump and um, uh, laying over for America and um, uh, trying to be their friend rather than uh, the interest of Nigerians. And for example, um, uh, they discussed about agriculture. Sure. And Donald Trump um, said that uh, he wants Nigeria to remove their trade barriers so that America can, can send the um, exports of produce to Nigeria. It should be the other way around. Um, Nigeria has become heavily reliant on oil. Therefore, um, agriculture forms a big part of the government policy. And um, uh, Nigeria should be asking um, America to allow Nigerian exports to reach the American market, not the other way around. And this is a prime example um, example of um, misplaced priorities. Many were shocked, uh, Lagoon, uh, when uh, Buhari uh, chose not to say anything about uh, uh, Trump's unpalatable statements about Africans. Were you surprised by that, Lagoon? Um, I wasn't 
surprised personally because um, even during that um, uh, during that press conference, um, President Buhari said that even he himself had problems with the press at home in Nigeria, where maybe sometimes he's misquoted. And um, he did a very good job at dodging a question. Now, in terms of diplomacy, to himself, he cannot go to America in front of Donald Trump and start criticizing him for those comments. He even went as far as to say that, oh, um, he's not aware if the comments are, are even true or not. I would have expected a more firmer statement from the president of Nigeria because Donald Trump did not deny saying that. So what he is doing is trying to make Donald Trump comfortable and trying to pander to his, to his whims and his ne- negative um, um, behavior, which is not right. Now, another talking point is uh, the issue of uh, the Super Tucano helicopters uh, that uh, President Trump is planning to sell uh, to the Nigerian Air Force to help yep. fight uh, Boko Haram insurgents. What do you make of this, Lagoon? People should be aware that um, under the Obama administration, they refused to sell Nigeria any form of um, top-level military hardware um, purely because of the human rights issues, which are very well known, um, the killing of civilians, um, the unwanted arrest of individuals accused of being Boko Haram, and the Obama administration said, no, we will not sell. Donald Trump, on the other hand, has opened up that avenue for sales of hardware and for military use. And those 12 aircraft signifies the first time that America has sold Nigeria such hardware in almost the past nine years. Now, those planes themselves, if you look at them, it's, it's actually a bit of an insult. These are a very low-grade 1960s, 70s airplanes. You can't compare them to the F-15 or the F-14 or even the Tornado. So even though they could possibly help in fighting Boko Haram, it does seem to me as if it is a, a bit of a fraudulent activity because um, the airplanes look as if they were from the world from World War II, and Nigeria has spent half a billion dollars buying them. Um, it is okay that you are now allowing Nigeria to buy your, your hardware, but must you sell subservient and sub-level hardware? That's the question. Now, the Muslim Students Society of Nigeria has also come out uh, uh, to say that uh, President Trump's comment about the killing of Christians in Nigeria was one-sided and uncomplimentary, warning that Nigeria must be cautious of uh, her relationship with the US. Do you share this sentiment? I think personally that it is also a well-known fact that many thousands of um, Christian Nigerians throughout the country um, are being um, murdered daily by Fulani herdsmen who are um, a pastoral herdsmen who go into people's farmland and um, their cows and their whole, whole acres of farms. And if the farm handlers are to retaliate, these herdsmen carry like guns. AK-47s, and they are indiscriminate in their killing to protect what they say is their way of life. This has caused a big issue in Nigeria because the ethnic Fulani, the same group as the herdsmen who are killing people, and it has been said and it is believed in the country that the president is not doing enough to stop the killing of these Christians. Donald Trump has mentioned this. I think, A, because um, a big part of Donald Trump's backing is the Christian right of American politics and American society who have an issue with the killing of Christians in Nigeria. Um, Donald Trump has an obligation to himself to mention whatever he feels is a current issue and one that he feels strongly about. Now, I think maybe that should have been said in private rather than openly 
for the whole world to see because it put President Buhari on the back foot and it made him a bit a bit cautious of his reply. And it is a big issue. Christians are being killed, but there are many ways to discuss such debates and such issues. That is Lagoon Akinloye, Nigerian political analyst on the line from London in the United Kingdom, talking to Kumbero Munjarere. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonye in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbara Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noël Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. You're still listening to Africa Digest with me, Pumela Lezondi. It is info at channelafrica.co.za. The Executive Board of the International Monetary Fund, or the IMF, late Monday approved a new three-year arrangement for Malawi under the Extended Credit Facility, or ECF, valued at 112.3 million US dollars. The figure, according to the IMF, is the equivalent of 56% of Malawi's quota in the IMF meant to support the country's economic and financial reforms. The same board also completed the fifth and sixth reviews of Ghana's economic performance and gave it a credit facility valued at 191 million US dollars to run for three years. George Mohango reports from Brantire. The executive board's decision enables an immediate disbursement of about 16 million dollars and the remaining amount will be phased over the duration of the program but subject to semi-annual review. The authorities' ECF-supported program aims to entrench macroeconomic stability and to foster higher, more inclusive and resilient growth. According to IMF, this will be achieved through fiscal consolidation to ensure long-term debt and external sustainability, containing inflation and resilient growth, tackling governance challenges, improving financial intermediation and strengthening access to finance and advancing critical growth supporting structural reforms. Following the executive board discussion on Malawi, Deputy Managing Director Tao Zhang and Acting Chair said Malawi has shown progress in achieving macroeconomic stabilization following two years of drought with a rebound in growth and inflation reduced to single digits. He however said fiscal position has deteriorated and the public debt to gross domestic product ratio has risen adding that increased debt service pressures have reduced space for needed infrastructure and social spending. Zhang said the medium-term economic outlook is favorable, with private sector activity expected to benefit from better infrastructure and an improved business climate. Meanwhile, Minister of Finance Guru Gondwe has told the media that as government, they would ensure that they use the funds to support economic and financial reforms. And then it was likely that, that uh, the program would be approved. 
Malawi's economy recently rebounded from two years of drought. Growth picked up from 2.2% in 2016 to an estimated 4.0% in 2017, owing to a recovery in agricultural production. Inflation has reduced below 10% from high double digits in recent years due to the stabilization of food prices, prudent fiscal and monetary policies, and a stable exchange rate says the International Monetary Fund. The IMF has since predicted that economic growth is expected to increase gradually, reaching over 6% in the medium term. With the ECF being extended, economic think tanks have appealed to Lilongwe to graduate from such programs. Malawi became a member of the IMF on July 19, 1965. George Mhango Blantyre. India says its business relations with South Africa remain intact despite bad publicity brought about by the Gupta family. Speaking to the media at the SA India Summit in Johannesburg, India's High Commissioner to South Africa, Ruchira Kamboj, said its history with South Africa, its history with South Africa, especially with regards to its struggle heroes, is more important than a scandal driven by one Indian family. The summit was held under the theme United by Legacy unified by prosperity and sought to maximize the potential of the economic and commercial partnership between the two countries, Ntlantla Matlango reports. The Gupta family has been under constant spotlight mainly for the revelations of their dealings with politicians and the use of state capture or the illegal soliciting of government funds for personal use. Speaking at a media briefing at the India-South Africa Business Summit in Santon, north of Johannesburg, High Commissioner Ruchira Kamboch said India and South Africa share an old friendship. India was the first country to inscribe apartheid on the agenda of the United Nations and in 1993 was one of the first countries to re-establish diplomatic relations with South Africa. In 1997, President Mandela went to India and signed the Red Fort Declaration, which was the basis of a strategic partnership between our two countries. What I'm trying to say is that this relationship, this friendship is very old. That partnership, that relationship has not been built on the foundation of one family. This relationship goes back in time and importantly, as our leaders have mentioned yesterday and today, we are a forward-looking partnership and we are convinced that we have a shared future together. South Africa's Minister of Trade and Industry, Rob Davis, says the Guptas were never an element in relations between the two countries. It's true that at one stage uh, they presented themselves as Indian investors. That was before they reinvented themselves as patriotic South Africans uh, committed to radical economic transformation. Uh, We never saw them as the main standard bearers of this relationship, never at any time. I mean, there were 
uh, all the established Indian companies that were at the, the heart of it, the Tatas, uh, the Mahindras, uh, all of that was at the heart of the way we were putting things forward. And I think the other thing is that uh, when I went to Minister Prabhu's meeting, one of the things that was being talked about on the side was, of course, this family hadn't paid its taxes in India. So it wasn't to the benefit of India what they did in South Africa. So I think that uh, it's an episode which has got lots of lessons for us, uh, but uh, actually it's never been a fundamental element at any time uh, of the relationship between South Africa and India. Several Gupta-owned properties in both India and South Africa have been seized or raided in an effort to investigate the family over corrupt activities. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Tlantla Matlangu in Johannesburg. You still listen to Africa Digest. Now, following Viktor Orban's conservative Fidesz party victory in Hungary, elections last month in a third landslide in a, row, in a row, the BBC reports from Budapest on his supporters and opponents. Viktor Orban is in party mood. In this video, posted on his Facebook page last week, he's visiting the opening of the Sokmar Star Festival in Budapest for talented young professionals. We see him mobbed by kids wanting to take selfies with him. Go for it, kids, Viktor Orban tells a cluster of teenagers. Thank you, they chorus. Thank you. One of the biggest problems facing Mr. Orban's next government, as it was his last, is the exodus of Hungarians to Western Europe. Marcel Tanai, manager of EU Work Recruitment Agency, the biggest of its kind, told me there was a massive leap in interest in going abroad after the elections. Before the elections, we had, let's say, 900 people visited our website looking for jobs abroad a day. And uh, after the elections, in the first week, it was 3,600. Now it's about 1,200. What kind of people are they? And what kind of work are they looking for? They're all kind of people, all age, with all kind of profession. But if you're interested in a typical person, then it's uh, these young adults, let's say between 25 and 35. People usually uh, finish their school or they have some years of work experience. But the exodus from Hungary isn't just a problem for the government, it's a problem for its opponents. Since the election, there have been two large protest marches. If those who are dissatisfied leave, might Viktor Orban never be voted out of office? Here's the rapper Gregory G. Rass, a favourite of the new opposition. The main reason for this demonstration today is to show all those who are shocked and upset by this election result that they are not alone. Katalin Lukaci was a prominent figure in the Christian Democratic Party, a subgroup within Fidesz, until she quit because of the party's opposition to the teachings of Pope Francis. Apart from the exodus, another danger is apathy. And that's why this demonstration is important. If they try to push laws through Parliament again, which reduce democracy, we will take to the streets and make them think again. The man just appointed to take over Mr. Orban's powerful chancellery is Gerge Gujas. Part of his job will be to justify his government's actions at home and abroad. I asked him if we could expect a less abrasive, more consensual style of government. 
it's not true that uh, Prime Minister Orban was aggressive in the last uh, eight years. We could uh, find a lot of compromise with the European Commission, we could find a lot of compromise with other member states of the European Union. So I think that with Hungary, if you are ready to cooperate, we are always ready to cooperate or debate about the most important European issue. On May the 8th, the new government will be sworn into office. If Viktor Orban, armed with his two-thirds majority, starts passing new laws at the same speed as in previous terms, both Mr. Guyash and the protesters outside Parliament will be kept busy. The report is by the BBC's Nick Thorpe. Europeans are also marking International Workers' Day with a number of strikes taking place across the continent. France is being ground to a halt by transport workers' strikes as the unions continue to fight reforms. Our European correspondent Jack Parrock reports. Belgium and France are both countries which are seeing major tensions between the unions and the governments as young leaders try to push through wide-ranging market reforms. Here in Brussels, post offices as well as government finance and health administration offices are remaining closed as part of a two-day walkout over an hours and pensions dispute. In France, where President Emmanuel Macron says he will not back down to union action, rail workers are entering their fifth week of strikes in which they walk out for two out of every seven days. The union is against the ending of so-called jobs for life on the French rail network and their early retirement system, which means train drivers can stop working as early as 45 years old in some cases. President Macron wants to implement the measures to cut down the state-owned rail network's debt, which currently stands at around 750 billion rand, but he's accused by those on the strike of setting a course to privatising the whole thing. The French government has refused to comment on the strikes while they're taking place, despite massive disruptions to travellers and commuters in Paris and across the country, which have travel ramifications across the whole of Europe. The unions say that if they're not listened to, they'll simply continue to strike, with French Prime Minister Philippe Edouard due to meet with the union leaders on May 7th. But as with recent labour market reforms, the government insists it won't be backing down. Jack Parrick, SABC News, Brussels. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. And staying with those Labor Day stories, latest global estimates by the International Labor Organization indicates that the highest number of children aged 5 to 17 engaged in child labor were found in Africa, an estimated 72 million. It further states that child labor remains concentrated primarily in agriculture at 70.9% and almost one in five child laborers work in the services sector at 70.17%. On this May Day, we debated the issue with Dr. Johnny Masubayana, Director of the International Labour Organization's office in Pretoria, Dewa Mavinda, who is the Southern African Director of the Africa Division at Human Rights Watch, and Dudus Kosana, Program Manager for Child Protection at South Africa's Save the Children. The definition issue is a very important one. 
So we at the ILO, we are the international standard-setting body of the United Nations. We have uh, two conventions, Convention 138 on minimum age for, for work, which is normally set at 15, and then we have the Convention on the Worst Forms of Child Labor, Convention 182. These two try to assist the member states all over the world in distinguishing between work that is good for children for their social development and child labor. The distinction being that child labor in basic terms, first of all, must have a commercial interest. And second of all, it affects a child's moral, physical uh, health and development and most importantly denies children the opportunity to go to school. So this is the main distinction between work that is socially good for children and work that is uh, harmful to children. Well, let me bring you in here. Uh, despite the targeted the policies implemented by African governments uh, uh, to combat child labor, the African region has also been among those most affected by situations of uh, state fragility and crisis, which in turn heighten the risk of, uh, of child labor. But are child labor policies uh, that are already in place failing children at Dewa, uh, do you think? What, what do you think? Well, it, it is at a number of levels. Uh, certainly, yes, uh, child policies are inadequate in their implementation and resulting in the failing of uh, children. But also, when you look at the African government, and I agree with the previous speaker that really poverty is uh, one of the key drivers uh, of child labor. And beyond that, we are looking at the lack of capacity of uh, government to regulate, implement, and monitor, you know, what is happening uh, in the industry, for example, particularly in agriculture, uh, on the farm, uh, to ensure that there are preventative mechanisms and that those who are in violation are held accountable. These are the challenges that uh, needs to be looked at. Not it's not only a question of policies, also a question of capacity and of comprehension of education and information for people to understand what child labour is. You know, we have done research across Southern Africa, and you know, I have been told by families that look, uh, what do you mean? Are you therefore saying that our children should not learn or should not help in the field? So there is. It is important that government leads in educating their people, their citizens, about what constitutes child labor and how to prevent it. Let me bring in here uh, Dudu Skosana. She is uh, the program uh, programs manager for child protection at Save the Children. What are your concerns with regards to the child labor practices on uh, the African continent? Our um, concern uh, as uh, civil society organizations working with children is the fact that um, I think the issue of child labor being a violation of children's rights uh, is not taken really seriously by all the affected countries. Unfortunately, we look, we view children as uh, properties, not not as humans. So that is why, they, like uh, my colleague was saying, there isn't... Uh, political will. We have ratified all the uh, necessary 
statutes, but in terms of now implementation, uh, it it is not the same. Unfortunately, child labour has affected big time the uh, development of our children, physical development and mental development, and uh, to a point where we are losing out so much as countries uh, what we could have uh, benefited from if these children had grown to their full potential. Let me come to you, Dr. Masubiyana. What do you think, uh, you know, what kind of role does the international community need to play here in terms of ending this, uh, this practice? The action at some level is important, but the drivers that, that drive the, the action at some level are global forces. And therefore, what we're doing, which I think we need to upscale and engage much more on, first of all, within SADAC, is to take a much more sub-regional approach. Individual communities, individual countries are not going to stand up and have big impact against a global phenomena. If you, in one country, push very hard for, against child labor, these companies will simply jump across the border where there is less emphasis, less enforcement. So what we are doing at SADAC level is to create a, a, a forum uh, of all the labor inspectorates in the sub-region. And this uh, year we are going to look on uh, particularly issues related to HIV and AIDS. Perhaps it is time also that we focus on child labor maybe in the next one to ensure that we look at this issue of uh, labor inspectorates and child labor from a sub-regional perspective. So that, and then from product level then to the African Union. We have good policy framework as has already been said but we need much greater institutional coordination across the whole continent. But Africa doing this on its own is not enough. The global companies, the global supply chains that are at the heart of this uh, activity, because we said child labor is largely an economic activity. The child household chores are not where our biggest problem is. It's in these sectors, vanilla, cocoa, uh, tobacco, which are global uh, supply chains. That's where we need this Alliance 8.7, which is already in place, to increase its advocacy levels so that we also tackle not only from the bottom at the farm level, not only at the national and sub-regional and continental levels, but also at the global level. This, I think, would be, will be well on our way to at least tackling this, uh, this, this challenge. That's Dr. Johnny Masubayana, Director of the International Labour Organization's Office in Pretoria. You also heard the voices of Dewa Mavinda, the Southern African Director of the Africa Division at Human Rights Watch, and Dudus Kosana, Program Manager for Child Protection at South Africa's Save the Children campaign. They were speaking to Kumbero Munjarere. South Africa's constitution and land have again come under the spotlight. Role players in the debate on land expropriation without compensation hosted by University of South Africa academics in Pretoria have called for the amendment of section 25 and 36 of the Land Act. This is in order to speed up the process of land redistribution and land reform. Fenoshuma reports. The ANC therefore agrees that we need to expropriate land without compensation, it agrees that we need to participate in this process with a clear scientifically proven modalities. The ANC's Ronald Lamolam was addressing delegates at the land seminar in Pretoria. He urged participants to be patient as the process of resolving land disputes unfolds. 
but to those holding a different view, the issue of land redistribution and reform is long overdue. Cope leader Musiwale Kotam says the delay in resolving land disputes should be blamed on the ANC-led government, not the country's constitution. If the fault lies in the men and women you put in government, when the tax have come, the monies have come in, the profits that we have, they go and give them to the Guptas and all of that. Look at the SAA. Look at all the we inherited from the old order. ESCOM. All state-owned enterprises, which were running, yielding huge profits. Profits we should have taken to give free education to our children, to do those kind of things, and to provide housing to our people and do that. No. Temba Godi of the African People's Convention has cautioned that the amendment of the Act should be handled with CAM. Changing the Constitution, it also means changing the paradigm shift of those who have political power in our country today. Because the current paradigm of the party that is in power is not appropriate for expropriating land and distributing it in the interest of our people. PAC's Lutandom Bindam believes that the land issue will never find closure as long as it fails to take into account the plight of the Koi nation. It is very important to understand that any expert related to land, whatever discussions that we have, we must make sure that we include the Khoisans. Uh, they are part, they have always been part, they are the indigenous. However, Black First Land First is advocating that every piece of land stolen from blacks during apartheid be returned to its rightful owners. BLF leader Andilem Kitamam believes there's no negotiation around the return of the land. When they took our land, there was no amendment of the constitution, there was no law, there was no parliament. They simply went and took our land. If you want our land back, we get organized and you go take back the land. We can't wait for parliament. It's your land too. The EFF, which is vocal on the issue of land, says speeding up the process of land expropriation without compensation will help restore the dignity of black South Africans. Most black communities lost their land under apartheid. EFF's Houting Chairperson Mandi Samashihum says they will continue with their program to seize land without fear of law enforcement agencies. The red ants. They killed people in Bronkospreit. They killed people in Nelmapias. They assault people because of land occupation. Therefore, we are going to continue with our land occupation program. We have never, ever stopped. The DA's head of policy, Gwen Nguyenyam, says expropriation of land without compensation is not necessarily in dispute. The DA says this line of argumentation is misleading. Some are calling for a referendum on land. Fanuel Schumer Epitorium. This is Africa Digest. Let's recap our top stories on Africa Digest for today. Workers around the world are celebrating May Day. The United States has pledged stronger support for Nigeria's fight against Boko Haram. And the IMF has approved a new three-year loan arrangement for Malawi. That wraps up Africa Digest for today. From myself, Spumelele Zondi, producer Ronald Piri, technical producer Wiseman Mangaile, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you very much for listening. Send us emails. It's info at channelafrica.co.za. 
info at channelafrica.co.za. You can also send us uh, SMSs on plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five. It is a Channel Africa one on Twitter. Bye bye. Sumuru jani wini le doe 